Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you know that this is actually the third of three weeks that we're spending in just the first six chapters of the book of Joshua. And you know that one of the reasons that we're doing that is simply because it gives us an excuse, honestly, to talk about an issue that's hugely prevalent in our culture, but uh, not just out there, but in here too, as, as I've learned and as I've shared. And it's hugely prevalent as well in the life of this guy, Joshua. And what I'm talking about is fear and anxiety and panic. And as I said last week, I understand that each one of those has its own unique definition. It's not all the same thing. But on the other hand, as I've experienced in my own life and as many of you guys have shared you've experienced in yours, uh, those three things run together a lot. Fear, anxiety, and panic. And we're looking at Joshua because it had, it had to have run together in his life. There's just no other way. Joshua is the guy, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, who had the unenviable task of succeeding Moses, none other than the legendary titanic leader who is Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel, which is just another way of saying of, as the leader of about two to three million people. Think about that for a minute. And he succeeded Moses at a really critical time in the history of the nation. Now, why do I say that? Well, because Moses, the great legendary and titanic Moses, led the people of Israel out of Egypt, all the miracles, the Red Sea parts for Moses. He feeds them with manna from heaven and water from rocks and all of that stuff. He leads them for 40 years, which I think is a big deal. He's the only leader this generation that Joshua inherits knows. He leads them up to the edge of the promised land, which represents their single greatest challenge because now this nation of former slaves is called by God to go up into the promised land that God has promised to them, but they're going to have to take it militarily and drive out all of the warlike peoples of the land. Okay, Moses takes them all the way up to the brink of the biggest challenge. He dies, and he leaves the job to Joshua, who I would imagine at least developed like a little twitch in his eyelid. You ever get one of those? I get those things sometimes. It's crazy, man. And it's like mildly irritating until you try to go to sleep, and then it's just really irritating, all right? So Joshua's eyelid is twitching. There's no question about this. And yet, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, and we'll see again today, God understands that. The Lord is aware of that. Joshua belongs to him, and he knows everything about Joshua. And he meets with him again and again and again in his fear and anxiety and panic. Like, it's not like he meets with him the first time, and then the next time, you know, it strikes. He goes, good grief, man. What more do I have to do? With you? you know, I mean, I met you the last He goes, no, no, he meets with him again. And then when it happens again, he doesn't say, look, I'm starting to get resentful. You're taking up a lot of my time because you've already, you know, I've had to meet with you now twice. Good grief. How much time do you think I have? No. He meets with him again and again and here again today. And he meets with us too. He lives within us by his spirit. He communes with us as we gather together as his people. He speaks to us through his word. He's available. And the question is, what does our response look like? Like, what should we do as a result of that reality in our own lives? And Joshua is going to show us what to do. Joshua's amazing, guys. So last week, if you were with us, we watched as Joshua led the Israelites, all two to three million of them, literally through the Jordan River and up into the promised land, the land that God has promised to them. And they set up their camp near the city of Jericho, which represents the single greatest and most formidable challenge that they're going to experience in the whole of this military campaign. Jericho is a fortress city. It is strategically positioned where it is located. 
in order to guard the whole of the land of Canaan from anyone who, like the Israelites, would seek to come up into the land from the southeast. And it is famous for its ginormous walls, which, if you think about it, back then in those days were impregnable, like you could not do anything about them. I mean, back in Joshua's day, like you couldn't, you know, shoot a missile at them. You know, you couldn't call in air support. You didn't even have sticks of dynamite for crying out loud. Firecrackers didn't even exist. So there's no way to blow a hole in this wall. You only have two options, humanly speaking. So option number one, take your army and encircle the whole city of Jericho and then cut off all the supply lines to the city and then wait until the people start to starve and eventually they go, okay, well, I mean, we're either going to starve or we're going to go out and surrender. That's one possibility, but one of the reasons why it was not a very good theory for these guys or a good idea for these guys is because the people of Jericho have known the Israelites are coming for months. Man, their refrigerators are stocked. You know, they all have like nine extra freezers. They are ready for a siege. They're like, guys, if you want to wait this thing out, you're going to wait a really long time. So option number one doesn't look so good. So option number two is build ladders. Make siege towers, you know? Try to create some kind of an earth ramp that you can get up over these walls with. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is it puts the Israelites at a strategic, massive disadvantage. I mean, these guys are just going to sit up there and pluck you off with their arrows and stab you with their spears and throw rocks on you and dump hot tar on you, all this kind of stuff. I mean, how many men are you going to have to lose to just take one guy off the wall? Okay, so like in this moment then, and this is where we're picking the story up, I'm thinking like all four of Joshua's eyelids are twitching at this point, okay? But notice what happens. It says in Joshua 5, verse 13, that when Joshua was by Jericho, the idea being on the eve of battle, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Okay, when you read the Bible, you've got to go back and do it like you did when you were a kid and had imagination. Like you, you've got to read it with an imagination and imagine the scene. So... I don't know if I got it right, like I don't have a picture of this, but I kind of imagine it like this. I imagine it's the eve of battle and it is late at night. And Joshua, our buddy, our friend, our hero in this story, is up burning the midnight oil, man. He knows that tomorrow the attack is on. He's got his plans laid out all over the table that they've been working on for months. I mean, Joshua himself has spied out the city with spies, but he himself, as a spy, went into the land and spied it out 40 years earlier. He knows what he's getting into. And he sent all of his generals home. Guys, go get some rest. It's going to be a long day. We're going to need a lot of energy. Just go. But his eyes are twitching and he can't sleep. And so he's just kind of pacing back and forth in his tent, at least in my mind. And he's, you know, he's just reworking the plan again and again. And he's thinking, what if we change this? And what if we move this? And is this person really the right person to lead that particular thing? And maybe we can get more, you know, stuff for ladders. Every, and, he's just, and all of a sudden he's startled by the reality that there's someone actually in the tent with him. And he looks up and he sees this warrior standing there with his sword drawn. And he realizes, by the way this guy holds the sword, that this guy is not a novice. This guy is a force to be reckoned with. And so he goes to him and he asks him what I think at least is the obvious question. It says, Joshua went to him and he said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And I love the response of this man because as you work your way through this story, you realize only this man can give this response because he's not a normal man. 
He receives worship. He tells Joshua to take off his sandals for the place where he's standing is holy. This is God who has come in the form of a man on the eve of battle to appear to his general, to his commander whose eyelids are keeping him up. Joshua says to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he just says, no. Which, if you're Joshua, is a little off-putting, I think, don't you? Because I mean, he doesn't know who he is yet. So you kind of want to back it up and go, okay, so hang on a second then. Maybe he didn't understand the question because it's no is not a valid answer. So it's, it, let, I'll go through it slowly. Option A, are you for us or, that's kind of the connector there, are you for our adversaries? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. That's got to be like the greatest line ever, right? It's amazing. What is he saying? He's saying, Joshua, you're asking the wrong question, buddy. The question isn't whether I'm for you or whether I'm for your adversaries. The question ever and always is whether or not you're for me. And how are we going to know Joshua's answer to that question? Because it's not just going to be in what he says. It's going to be in what he does. So what does he do? It's amazing. It says that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped. And then he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And then do you know what else he did? He then just sat there in silence and waited for the response. That's amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. He falls to the ground in the posture of total submission to the Lord immediately as he recognizes who he is. And then figuratively speaking, he hands God the microphone to his life and he says, here you go, say whatever it is that you want to say to me. What does my Lord say to his servant? I'm just going to listen. Go. That's it. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, okay, so Lord, here's the deal. I am kind of freaked out about, you know, Jericho. I mean, we've worked this plan over a thousand times. I'm not sure how in the heck this is going to work. So here's the microphone to my life. I'm feeling in this moment like the only thing I need to hear from you on is about the city of Jericho. So if you want to say something about Jericho, please do. Here you go. Here's the microphone. Go. He doesn't do that. Just like he doesn't say, okay, so I'm freaked out about Jericho. Would love to get some advice on that. Please speak to that issue. But know this, when I give you the microphone, I don't want to hear about anything else. So just in case you're wondering, I'll be specific. I don't want to hear about sex. I don't want to talk about that with you because I think I know how that might go. I don't want to talk about money. I don't want to talk about who I'm supposed to forgive. I know who it is, you know who it is, you know that I know who it is, and I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about my personal relationships or my business ethics. I don't want to talk about the fact that I am incredibly selfish. I don't want to talk about the fact that I'm immature and doing nothing about it. I don't want to talk about my health. I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about, you get the idea? And the other thing that he doesn't do is he doesn't say, okay, Lord, um, you know, now that I think about it, I don't think I need to give you the microphone, honestly. Like, I'm so flattered that you're here, and I think the guys are going to be really jacked that you showed up. It's very touching. We love the fact that you care. This is wonderful. Thanks for doing this. But we've got it all figured out. I, I have my plan for my life already, well, for the battle. 
So if you want to bless my plan, that would be phenomenal. I would love to enlist your sword in my army and in this venture. He doesn't do that. Instead, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped. And he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you were standing is holy. Have you heard that before? It's exactly what he said to Moses at the burning bush. It's why you know this isn't just some average guy. And then we read that Joshua did so. And what I want you to see is that the Lord commands the same thing of us. Now, with different language, I get that, in different ways, and it works out differently. I understand that. But the Bible makes it clear, first of all, that Jesus commands us to totally surrender to him, not mostly surrender to him, but in light of who he is. It's, it's total surrender to fall on our face before the Lord and to give him the microphone to our lives and to say, listen, with no qualifications here, no restrictions here, nothing out of order and nothing off limits, just speak. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm just, I'm going to listen. Because God, you know, I, I, I mean, you're not on my team as much as I try to enlist God on my team. You're not actually on my team. The question is whether or not I'm on your team. The Lord is for us. He's proved that at the cross. But here's what he also got at the cross. He didn't just get our sin. He got us. And that's actually not a bad thing. Like that's, it sounds intimidating, but it's not intimidating. It sounds like, oh, good grief. Now I've, but it's actually a wonderful thought. Lord, I don't just need you to forgive my sin. I need you to cure me of it. Like I need you to help me with it. Yes, I was selfish yesterday and I did this. I, I need you to cure my selfishness and help reverse that. I was foolish yesterday and I did this. Okay, well, you know what? I need wisdom to live by. I need power. I need peace. I need joy. I need, I need you to take over control of this life that I really don't do as good of a job managing as sometimes I like to think. And in that is freedom. So then as with Joshua, Jesus commands us to totally surrender to him. But then secondly, as with Joshua, Jesus commands us to worship him. And I don't think we need to take our shoes off to do that. So if that's freaking you out, no big deal. But, but I do think it means that we need to realize that we are worshiping creatures, that as human beings, do you know what we do all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously? We worship something or someone. Every one of us, as I've said in the past, has a heart, and every heart there is a throne, and on the throne at all times is something or someone. Isn't that not true? And Jesus comes along and says, hey, <laughs> I'm the one who loved you so much. I died that I might have you for forever. I am the glorious king. I am the son of the living God. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And I need to occupy the throne of your heart, and not just because of who I am and the reality that I, singularly, like in all the universe, deserve that position. But because when I'm there, too, you will be most free. It'll free you from all the other things that you worship that enslave you. And then thirdly, Jesus commands us to follow him. And what happens with Joshua is that, you know, after he tells Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, and he does so, 
Jesus gives him the battle plan, and they don't look anything at all like the plans that Joshua and his generals had laid out. Surely, I mean, it just it can't be anything like that. Like, I can imagine the conversation that Joshua has to have with his guys the next day when they all huddle up, you know, for, I mean, we're going to go attack Jericho. And he's like, guys, our plans threw them all away. And they're like, hey, um, you know, I mean, we've been working on this for months. Like, what, why? Because the Lord came to me, and here's the plan. So I want you to get all the people, you know, two to three million. So that'll be easy. And I want you to organize them in a big fat line. And then what we're going to do is once a day for six days, we're just going to walk silently around the city. It's once a day. And then on the seventh day, you might want to wear your Nikes, okay? Because we're going to walk around the city seven times, and then at the end of the seventh lap, we're going to blow the trumpets, and then everybody's going to shout, and then the walls are going to fall. And then the city is going to be ours. I mean, you're cashing in some serious leadership chips at that moment, don't you think? Like, and he's the new guy, remember? I mean, he's a known commodity, but he ain't Moses. And yet, that's what happens. That, that's the way it works out. That crazy plan works. Jesus has a different plan. It's a different plan for you, too. Listen to what the Lord says to us, to us, okay, you ready? In Luke 9, beginning in verse 23, you know this passage of Scripture, probably at least. It's very familiar. He talks about what does it look like to follow me? He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, what? Let him deny himself. Okay, I'm going to bore you for a second. I'm going to talk about Greek language, but only for a second, so stay with me. The Greek language that underlies those, those words, deny himself, makes it clear that what that means is let him make up his mind what he's going to do when it comes to me finally. Let him settle it. Let him decide that the most important thing in all the universe, which is Jesus and his kingdom, and by the way, if he's real and his kingdom is real, then there's nothing even close. Let him make up his mind that the most important thing in the universe is in fact the most important thing in the universe and orient the whole of his life around it. No more one foot in, one foot out stuff. No more I'm sitting on the fence stuff. No more I'm sitting on the bench stuff. Let him stop being someone who spectates Christ and what he's doing. Let him stop being somebody who's just a fan of Jesus and what he's doing. And let him get in the game. If anyone would come after me, let him do that. Make the call, man. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That's what that looks like as it's lived out daily. Take up his cross daily. That's the language of death, which is necessary if you think about it. Why? Because if I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to have to die to everything else I would have otherwise done. So I would have used my time this way. I've got to die to that so I can use it this way. I would have used my abilities or whatever this way. I've got to die to that so I can use it this way. Get the idea? Here's life as I would have lived it. I'm dying to life as I would have lived it to go on the great adventure with Jesus, which is a privilege, which is amazing. Do I believe that I have a better plan for my life than the one who made my life for himself and his purposes? and loves me so much he has given his own to claim me back for taking my life and living it in a different way.
do I think I've got a better plan than him? A more fulfilling plan, a more joyful plan, a plan that leads to a greater level of, of meaning and purpose, even happiness. Do I think that that's the case? Because it doesn't make sense. When you, when you start to play it out, he's like, let me invite you into what I made you to do and made you to do together with me. So any, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, Jesus says, and follow me. And then he concludes, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, which is also necessarily true. Why? Because if I take my little life, and that's all that it is, and I live it for me, then when I die, if not before, what will I lose? everything I've lived for, right? But if I take my little life that has been made to be lived for Christ and, and I live it for Him imperfectly, <laughs> believe me, but nevertheless, then when I die, what do I lose? I've lost nothing. But what do I gain? I gain everything I've lived for. Do you see the logic? It's brilliant. So I want to ask you three questions, and the first of which is just a faith question. It's like, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that? Secondly, if you do believe that, okay, you ready? Do you want to do that? Like, is there something in you that says, yes, let's do that. I'm excited about that. I want to be a part of that. Because if there is something in you that says that, that it runs absolutely contrary to every fiber of my human nature and yours. In other words, that is a supernatural impulse, is it not? And then question number three, and I think maybe it's the most important one, is will you, are you willing to take the risk of asking God to give you that faith and to give you that desire, that passion, that inner compulsion that says, you know, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Are you, are you willing to take the risk of asking Him to reveal Himself to you? It's just another way of saying it in such a way that you can't deny the reality of who he really is and that when you look at him, everything else just fades away and you go, my goodness, how could I not totally surrender to him? How could I not fall on my face in worship of him? How could I not make whatever sacrifice needs to be made happily? Who cares? So that I can follow him. Will you pray that prayer? So the reason that I'm asking that is that beginning next Sunday and for the next 10 weeks, we're going to begin a series of messages that we're calling the MOVE series. And I want to tell you how we arrived at this. And I've shared this with some of you already, but, but we arrived at it probably six or eight weeks ago. We had been planning the series. We knew what, it wanted to be, what we wanted it to be about and all of that stuff, but we couldn't land on a name. And so we were sitting around a table, and I think it was Matt who said, all right, so in one word, what do you want to see happen as a result of this series? Go. And we just went around the table. And one person said revival, and another said renewal, and another said engagement, and another said awakening, like spiritual awakening, but you asked for one word. We, I, I want to be awakened to who God is. I want Him to awaken passion and desire and, and love and affection for Him and for my fellow man. I want Him to awaken me to the fact that, you know, this is what He's given me in Jesus, and this is who I am through faith in Jesus, and this is what I have the privilege of doing with my life. We want revival, renewal, awakening, engagement. And then we kind of huddled up and said, okay, so what we're saying, I think, is that we want to be moved. And we want to see people be moved. 
We want to be moved personally and then in our homes and in this church and in our school and out into the city. And we want to see all the people in all the churches moved. We want to see the county moved. We want to see God move. And here's the deal. When you have an infinite God, there's always more to be moved by. Always. For forever we'll be discovering different aspects of His glory. For forever we will be moved. So we're going to talk about worship that moves and community that moves and people that moves. But here's the deal. Uh, we can't create revival or renewal or engagement or move or, you know, whatever, however you want to put it. Only the Lord can do that. It used to confuse me when I was a kid because we have all my life and still do vacation up in the southwest North Carolina, kind of North Georgia mountainy area. And I love it, love it, love it up there. And it's a landscape that is littered with really cute little adorable churches, if you've ever been up there, with wonderful people. It's been our experience up there. Um, but, you know, every now and again, one of those churches declares a revival. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but they all have the signs with the movable type on the street, you know, so they, they send their guy out. It's their pastor. He does everything. And then he, he, you know, he announces revival, you know, brother so-and-so is coming July 28, 7 p.m. And they make up little signs. And in the town that we go to, there are literally two stop signs or two stop lights, sorry. And so they put their things out. You know, there's one fast food restaurant. It's a McDonald's. Guy's got to be the richest guy in town. Like everybody goes to McDonald's, I don't know, three times a day as far as I can tell. So by the drive-thru, you know, you put that out on the square, the town square, which is about the size of this building maybe, uh, probably a little smaller, and they put the signs out, you know, Truett Baptist Church, Revival, July 28, 7 p.m. And it always confused me. I, I thought, how does that work? Like, you know, does the church scheduling coordinator, you know, call up the, the admin for the Holy Spirit and say, hey, is he available on the 28th at 7? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, can, can he, oh, he can make it. We're going to write that in. We're right. Then the Holy Spirit's coming July 28 at 7, and we're going to have a revival. And I, I mean, I was really an irritating kid, but, <laughs> but that's kind of what we're doing, isn't it? Isn't it? So then how does revival renewal, whatever you want to call it, work. I think it works as the Holy Spirit goes to work in the hearts of a people who desire to see it happen. I want to be moved. Will you pray that prayer? Because there's a bunch of us who want to be moved here. And then who humble themselves before the Lord and say, yeah, but here's what life has taught me. I can't move me. Therefore, then I want to be moved, right? I can't move my husband or my wife or my kids. They can't move me. I can't move you. I can't actually, I can't move anybody. I cannot take that which is cold and make it warm. I can't take that which is dead and make it live. I can't do that. So then how does that passion and desire issue forth on a practical level? It issues forth in you and in me coming to the Lord and saying, God, move us by your spirit fall upon us in such a way as to bring us life. So I'm asking four things of you, okay? Beginning today, number one, I'd like you to pray for the Lord to move. I want you to pray for him to move in you and in your husband or wife or kids or whatever. I want you to pray for him to move in, in us and all those who will be leading. I want you to pray for him to move in everybody here and everyone in our school and in our church. 
want you to pray for him to move in the city. And I'd even love it if in your prayer life this week, you would declare some kind of fast. It could be from food. It can be from television. It could be from media. If you're a college football fan, I know the pain of this. It can be from sports talk radio, okay, which is particularly painful this particular week. And instead of listening to that stuff, you can drive and pray, God, move in us. Take the time is the idea to cry out to the Lord as one who realizes that if the Lord doesn't move, no one moves. Secondly, beginning tomorrow, I'd like you to start doing personal worship if you aren't already. If you have a phone, and I trust that you do, then get our app. If you don't have it, it's free. If you don't know how to do that, somebody at the Information Center can help you get that set up afterwards. Turn, go to your settings, turn on the personal worship push, and beginning tomorrow, you're going to start getting information. So you're working through the passage of Scripture before we show up next week. And you're, you're thinking about it, and you're praying about it, and Lord, move. And in it, you're going to see a picture of the Lord whom you're asking to move you and everybody else. Thirdly, beginning next Sunday, be here and be early. That will be so bizarre for us, won't it? I mean, come on. Seriously, organize your life in such a way as to get here five minutes early, as to be able to put your kids wherever it is they need to go or get done whatever it is that you need to get done and to sit down Oh, and to take a breath and to spend some time in prayer. Be here, be early. And if you can't be here in this series, hey, 11 o'clock, we stream live. We archive all these services and videos so you can see them. Stay with us in the journey. And then lastly, come expectantly. In other words, come as a people who believe that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. Lord, I'm expecting you to move in me and in all of us as you see fit. God, reveal yourself to us in such a way as to cause us to say, good grief, <laughs> you are real. And how can I not totally surrender? How could I not worship? How can I not give my life away as a sacrifice in worship of you? Live for you just as Joshua did. For you, God, meet with us in our fear, and you meet with us in our anxiety, and you meet with us in our panic, and in our joys, and in everything else. How? By giving us yourself. And that's what I want. Lord, I want you. I want more of you. So you have your assignment, okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, that the commander of the army of the Lord is ours through faith in Jesus, that we have been given the unimaginable privilege of taking our lives and enlisting them in his cause and mission. And so then, Lord, I pray that in these coming weeks and today that your spirit would pour out upon us, that he would humble us that he would purify us. God, that he would satisfy us, that he would, make, that he would make you known to us, that he would overwhelm us with a vision of your goodness and of your glory, with who you are, that you are real and that you are incomparable.
Lord, move us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.